Hey, Sarah. Yes, Josh? Are you ready? I think so. Great. But before we start, we here at the Puppet Pod, along with Dixon Place, stand with love in solidarity with Black, Indigenous, and persons of color in our communities and across the country against racism, white supremacy, and police brutality. And for more information and specifics on our respective anti-racism statements and plans of action, please visit DixonPlace.org and ShakeOnTheLake.org to find out how we're listening, learning, and working within our communities. Black, Black Lives, Lives Matter. Matter. Hi. <laughs> My name is Nefri Amini, and I think puppetry is a spiritual art form. Puppetry is hard because puppetry is analog. <laughs> Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Puppet Pod. I am your um, puppeteer pretending to be a podcaster, Josh Rice, and very excited to once again be here with my partner in podcast crime, Sarah Stabley. Sarah, how are you? Doing good, doing good. What podcast, podcast, pod, pod, podcast crimes? Let me try that again. What podcast crimes are we going to be getting into today? Uh, well, saying things clearly, apparently, <laughs> the first one, and then probably like other like things interfering with the cleanliness of the recording, like the work on the railroad track that's happening behind my house right now. There is oh. a giant bulldozing construction machinery and like a very large train that's like, I, I think they're putting new railroad ties underneath the tracks or something. Um, But there's a lot of trucks and a lot of people around and they've closed the road off. So uh, that will probably happen. So another crime will be committed, which will be construction sounds in a podcast. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I have stuff to add to that too. So little listeners can't see where we're at right now, but I am sitting in my apartment and there's a window to my left next to my door and it's big Mm -hmm. window. And earlier, when we were recording a different session, a woman came up to the window and just smashes her face against the window and looks in, trying to see what's inside. And I look over, and it scared me. And she kind of gives me this look of like, what are you doing in there? And then she like looks in through the side window to see what's inside this building. And I just sort of waved, and she was just like, huh. And like turned around and walked away. So I also want you to know that I held my cool during that recording when that happened. Couldn't even tell. Wow, that was like almost, that was almost an actual crime committed. (laughs) Not not even a podcast malfunction of any kind. That was like a bizarre moment of almost trespassing, it sounds like. The, The human zoo, someone is peering inside to see you and your natural environment, I guess. (laughs) Yep, that's me. Well, enough of this uh, flibberty gibbeting about. We have an amazing, incredible human being joining us today. We do. Someone, again, that I am so lucky to be able to call a, a pal and an incredible artist in their own right, Nefri Amini. How are you, my friend? I'm good. My internet is saying unstable, so I'm trying to, like, scooch around and make it be stable. Hi, Jay Rice. 
thanks for Hi. and Sarah, thanks for inviting me to be a part of your what did you call it? The puppet pod. The puppet pod. Yeah. The puppet pod. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, I'm glad to be in here with y'all. <laughs> Well, we're, we're so thrilled to have you today. Um, and I know we kind of already briefly talked about this, but how have you been holding up in this crazy pandemic nutty time in the world? Yeah, it has been crazy. Uh, first couple of weeks, I was one of the banana bread makers. I was like, I'm good. I get to clean up, <laughs> take care of my plants. They need to be repotted. Yeah. <laughs> And then, then by the end of March, all like emotional hell broke loose, and um, yeah, yeah. and then it has just kind of gone on since then. It's weird to feel like, well, now I'm kind of settled into the insanity of it, mm -hmm. the uncertainty of it, the surrealness of it, which means that probably not well at all. <laughs> like, you know, the more used to it you get, the more you got to recognize, like, something must be really wrong. And then you add in the extra layer, you know, yeah. all of the stress, the tension, and the protests, and all day helicopters. Helicopters and birds. Helicopters and birds. That's like the soundtrack right now. It's a weird time. Yeah, I was uh, down in Brooklyn this last weekend, and just hearing all the frequency of helicopters flying around was... Yeah. Just bizarre. Yeah. Unsettling. Unsettling. And it's always a sound that bothered me whenever I did hear it randomly, like at night. I'm like, ah, it means clearly something's wrong if people had to get into a helicopter and get close. But now it's just regular daytime, evening, nighttime, and, um, and fireworks every night which is, is that happening there too? Not regularly here. Not here. I'm back upstate now. And um, yeah, no, there hasn't been regular fireworks, but. Yeah. Not the pretty colors of the sky, but the kind where it's like, oh, is it gunshots or is it fireworks? And oh, let me look at the neighborhood app and see which one. But it's every day for weeks now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm curious too, Nefri, for you, and I think, I don't know, you certainly can't speak for other artists, but I've certainly been uh, feeling this myself, that the, des not the desire, but the motivation to try to, like, get back into some kind of creative space has been really difficult mm -hmm. for me, and I'm curious for you, like, how are you sitting in this this place where, you know, artists often are really good at responding to these kind of moments and it's a pandemic on top of everything else that's going on. Yeah. You know, how are you uh, sitting in this, this space creatively? Uh, not as well as I would like to be according to my ideals in my head. You know, it's yeah. like, it's all that, I don't want to call it pressure, but it's probably more of an internal pressure of feeling the responsibility of an artist and all that, like of all times, now would be the time that, you know, that we need to do something from the heart and from the soul. But I'm like, the zest of spirit to do that is not there right now. So it, it gives a feeling of worthlessness on top of anything mm -hmm. else where I'm like, gosh, I, I really do wish I could create or say something profound, but I have been little by little losing words. Mm -hmm. And so one thing positive that has come about, you know, the importance as um, Dan Herlin would say too, of declaring studio hours, 
floor. I yes, that's right. That's right. Find that studio time. The stu- yeah, it's been a daunting task for years, you know, developing consistent studio time. But now I have all this time. And so I finally at least, uh, it's been like three weeks now, got myself to the place where like laying in bed almost in the tantrum voice. I'm like, 10 a.m., <laughs> 10 a.m., every day at 10 a.m., I will shut down my phone and I will um, just declare that my official two-hour window minimum of studio time. And what I do within that window will be up to me, but that's my time to write, make a mark on the page, sing a song, read or watch something inspiring. And um, that has been positive. I will come out on the other side of this pandemic with declared studio time that I have held and let everybody else in my family know, like, don't, 10 to 12, I got to go. It's 10. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So... That's uh, the closest to it. And gardening. I've been like growing watermelon seeds in the backyard and that's nice. That's awesome. Is anything um, like sprouting up yet? I don't have, things are sprouting. I like germinated the seeds on a um, heating pad in the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, why is it 40 degrees in May? I can't do anything with this. So those are other issues. But now everything is holding solid and I put them in the backyard. So it's watermelon, honeydew, and zucchini, and bell peppers. That sounds so nice. And they like getting big. There's no fruit yet, but I'm happy. So that's where my creativity has maybe been, like touching the earth. And I don't think I'm unique there. I think a lot of people are like going to needing to put their hands in the dirt. Yeah, I, I've been doing that same thing on Memorial Day. I uh, finally planted all of these seeds. I had gotten so many things, you know, I think part of it was like my pandemic panic of we're going to need to figure out how to grow our own food because we're, we're all going to be fucked. Because no, no food is going to exist in the world. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. And then, you know, eventually like, you know, the things calmed and... Uh, I eventually got them in the ground and was so excited to, and I've been wanting to garden for a long time and I've just never consistently been in one place. You know, we artists are constantly moving, moving, moving to the gigs. Um, And the pandemic has given me this really lovely opportunity to have a garden. So I, I built a raised bed and, you know, I have seedlings that are like leaping out of their pots toward the window and the sunlight, yes! which is really exciting. So that's a, that's been a really nice new hobby out on my end as well. You built your raised bed? I did. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. I got milk crates. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, this building it thing has been like a threat for some years. So let me just get some individual milk crates and everything has its own little space and I can move it around. I'm puppeteering milk crate plants (laughs) every day. I was like, oh, the sun's not so bright here. Let me move you a tomato plant. (laughs) That's amazing. Yes. Nefri, I would love to keep talking about gardening with you today, uh, but we can also talk about our other, some of our other interests in the world of theater. And um, one of the things that strikes me, and it has always struck me, I think, about knowing you and your personality and the way that you approach your work, and you've even talked about this a little bit already today, is that puppetry is a spiritual practice in a lot of ways for you. And I also just feel like in general, the way that you exist in the world comes from this kind of spiritual place. And I'm curious if you could talk to us a little bit about how that influences your work, especially with, is it Kunum? Am I saying that the right way? 
Kunum Productions. Kunum Productions and the uh-huh. idea of creative anthropology, which is just like such a beautiful idea. So I wonder if maybe you could tell people a little bit about that. Okay, so Kunum Productions is the name, the umbrella that I put all my work under. And I coined, I'm sure it existed in some way, but for myself, I coined it with my own meaning of like, my heart work is what I call creative anthropology. And it comes out of believing that self-study is the highest form of scholarship that it can exist. Mm. And so I think that no matter what it is that I'm creating, it doesn't matter if it's going to be a puppet show, if it's going to be a one woman show, or if it's going to be um, a book of poems or a children's book, it's always myself is sitting at the center of it, you know? So there's always this thing of personal narrative and me looking at trying to understand my inside world. And so I think that um, in any work, be it if I'm the artist or someone else is the artist, I'm just interested in how do we study our own spirits and produce work from that place. Work that's not superficial, you know. Mm -hmm. I've never really been interested in art for art's sake. I think art is powerful, but I think that for me, for those who are able to do art for art's sake and it's cute and it's fun, I think we all get some sort of enjoyment from it. But for me, I put that responsibility on myself as making sure that art and creativity has an agenda to uplift. And for Kanoom Productions, I I'm specifically interested in the upliftment and the excavations of African peoples, of Black peoples of the diaspora, because I know that we are in a code red of a state of emergency, of being a people that has gone through this real unique process of cultural erasure. And so I use my work, too, as a means of, like, we're not just uh, happy, dancey entertainment people, but that those things that get stereotyped as, oh yeah, that's Black. Those are really the residue of an entire like intellectual tradition that just hasn't been articulated anymore. So that's what my work is aimed to do, to give articulation to the spirit. And (laughs) even though my first focus is on, okay, well, how do we heal and mend this erasure and restitch together that Black people have gone through? You know, look at the history of anthropology and kind of some of the the worst things and divisions that have been put between people and hierarchies has come from that institution of anthropology. I think that If that can be mended and healed, it's also my way of saying, well, how do we create something that can show the interconnectedness of all human beings and people together? So that's kind of like a, you know, it's a two-tier, a flip side, double-edged thing I'm trying to do with my work. Did that make sense to you? It makes incredible sense. I, I appreciate the idea, too, that you don't make art for art's sake. And I remember uh, you and I, when we were in grad school together at Sarah Lawrence, we worked on a grad lab piece. Never forget it. And what I loved about that process was you really pushing me because again, I came to grad school from like just being an actor, you know, like, and again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with actors. So I shouldn't say just being an actor, but that's really all I was doing. I did a little bit of playwriting and stuff like that, but my view of theater was very limited. And what I loved about this particular process with you was, you know, we were interested in this puppet form and trying to create a puppet thing of some kind. And you always kept pushing me to be like, we have to 
dig deeper. Like, what else is here? What else is here? What else is here? Like, find this other thing that we can explore in this work. So we weren't just like making a puppet piece for making a puppet piece, but instead we were really trying to get at something more beautiful and, you know, deeper and less on the nose for people, you know, and letting the, the visuals really kind of speak for what we were trying to do. You know, you taught me that I do that. I had no idea I was doing that. I just, <laughs> we were just making work. <laughs> but I didn't even know until you said that later that I was like, that it was a push and a nudge toward let's go deeper. I yeah. was just like, but isn't that where our work is supposed to come from? From the core of who we are? <laughs> yeah. And, and it was just a lovely moment for me to be like, oh, right, we, we can do more and get at more with what we're doing. And again, I credit Sarah Lawrence, or at least the education at Sarah Lawrence for helping me get there, you know, with people like Cass Medley and and Dan and David Newman, these teachers that really were giving us the tools to investigate in different ways and, you know, exposing us to things in different ways, especially again, that class that we took with Ernest Abuba, where we got to go to La Mama every week and and see all sort of work from all over the world, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, we got exposed to so many things. And I also found that to be an incredibly formative part of uh, our time there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, you mentioning, you know, it's like I had, I feel like, you know, we had like this perfect dream team because I had Dan Harlan and Lake Simons as, you know, these great puppetry teachers and scenic design, Lake was also teaching. But then I stumbled into my first playwriting class, you know, but the world of puppetry, it's interesting because puppetry is all inclusive. You know, it's like, you are the writer, you are the performer and the puppeteer and you are the designer and you are the director and it's not even thought otherwise, it just is, you know? But then to take an official playwriting class with Cass Medley, I am. it will be eternally grateful for her because I was scared. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to write dialogue. And she distinctly said to me, like, um, okay, I'm trying to whisper that, right? Instead of like <laughs> you write, having to acknowledge to the room, I was like, I don't really write dialogue that good. <laughs> so she's like, okay, well, now that you got that out the way, instead of you claiming that as a deficiency, why don't you claim it as a as a creative angle, as your particular approach. And it was like, okay, the roof is off. I am fully released. So I was able to show up to her class on the next week with her having given this topic a lie, just a writing prompt, a quote unquote writing prompt, right? And I show up as this YouTube puppetry DJ because I didn't know how to use GarageBand yet, which meant that I have like 25 different YouTube tabs open from Amiri Baraka to Noam Chomsky to astrophysicists and most depth. And I'm using all these sound bites to just hit play at different places, literally puppeteering it while I have this set design that I made sitting on the table to just tell my story. You know, so it's like, it's, there's many ways into puppetry, I guess. And, but that's how Food for the Gods was born, which is a puppetry piece that's very much a theatrical piece that didn't just stay kind of within the puppet world only. Yeah. It's kind of weird to draw that line between the two things, but it's just things I've been noticing that 
theater kind of exists and includes a little bit of puppetry just for the spectacle. And then the puppetry world exists, which is the heart and soul of, you know, enacting these objects, but it's separate from the theater world. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like it was a good way of merging the two without me even knowing that's what was happening. Yeah, I want to dig into Food for the Gods a little bit more in in a moment, but I wanted to ask a quick question for you about... (laughs) Uh, when people ask you what you do, and I know this is like something a lot of us theater artists and particularly people that work in puppetry, you know, saying that we are a puppeteer <laughs> often doesn't quite encapsulate all of the things that we do. And you were just starting to articulate how puppetry is so all-inclusive, almost like the idea of total theater. Um, so I mm-hmm. guess depending on the context, this probably is different, of course. But when people ask you, you know, what you do, how do you, how do you talk about it? How do you approach it? A script. <laughs> Literally, I say, I'd be better off telling you what I don't do. Okay? I don't work on the human body. I don't touch it. I will work on the spirit and the mind, but I don't deal with the body. And then after that joke, I just say, I make stuff. <laughs> I think that is so, like, straight into the point. We make stuff because, you know, the next question, if you say artists is, oh, what's your medium? It's like, oh, goodness. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes it's a tin can and sometimes it's clay and sometimes it's a stick. And And sometimes it's a heating pad with some seeds. Sometimes it's a plastic bag and it just depends on what I'm trying to express. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I love that response. Um, That's something I'm always so curious to with multidisciplinary theater makers and especially those of us that use puppetry often in our work it's just so difficult sometimes to get people to come along for that discussion because it usually ends up being a discussion to really talk about all of the things that we do it is and what do you say josh it's like, oh it's always contextual you know <laughs> like um sometimes i'll say i'm a puppeteer because you know i am i i get in there and I manipulate objects in other people's work and my own but you know I'm also a producer and artistic director and a teaching artist and a rural arts advocate and an improviser and there's just it's too many things to try to say so you could say theater maker and then people are like well what's that mean and you're like well okay <laughs> here's the list of what that all means so yeah, it's, it's tricky. It's Isn't tricky. that something? And yet, as you're, I'm nodding my head as you're talking, and all I can think is, and yet artists get looked at from outside the arts world is, oh, what a cakewalk life. It's like, are you kidding? We're like octopus souls. We're having to do everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, why don't we take a little break, and then we'll come back with more Nefri Yamini. Thank you. The Puppet Pod is produced in collaboration with Dixon Place, whose virtual programs are free and participating artists are remunerated. That's right, artists getting paid to do what they do even during a pandemic. Donations help us bring together visionary artists and adventurous audiences and support the community during this challenging time. So if you like what you are listening to in the Puppet Pod, please consider making a gift to dixonplace.org. Dixon Place's puppetry programs, including Puppet Block, Mine by Sheena Stripe, and New Money by Maria Camilla, are made possible in part with generous support from the Jim Henson Foundation and donors like you. Thank you. The Puppet Pod.
We are back with more Nefri Amini. Uh, so Nefri, I know that we were just kind of talking about how difficult it is to encapsulate all of the things that we do into like one title, but there's another thing that you do that I think is super exciting, or at least you have done in the past, which is you write children's books. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the work that you've created, especially Memories of an Elephant, A Little Elephant? Yeah, it's that's my only one. <laughs> But Memories of the Little Elephant was created to be a three-part series. And so I have been working on the second one, but that was the first product of Canoon Productions with the goal being, I picked up a book called The Ledger Book of Thomas Blue Eagle. This was a long time ago now that I started and finished that book. And it was this ledger book drawn with all the illustrations done like it was like a child. And it was a little Native American boy who's, I want to say Sue right now. I can't remember which particular tribe. But he's just telling his story of what happened to his people in such a plain and simple way. And as he's telling the story, he's using words that are coming from his culture that I'm like, I don't even know what these words are or mean. So I just had to be forced to recognize it. That's because I'm on the outside of that tradition and that culture. And then it gets all the way to the end where he's in this school, in this reservation where the teacher has handed him a ledger book and tells him to tell his story. And I just thought this, and there was a glossary at the end. And I thought, this is amazing. How come Black people don't have anything like this? How come there's not a story for African people that says, and this is just simply what happened from the beginning of time? Because most of the time what happens with the history of African peoples throughout the diaspora, it starts with enslavement. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's where history begins, right here in America, after you were kidnapped. And then there's that. And then you see also stories of life on continental Africa, but there's never the connection point. So again, with my work being like, well, how do we restitch and heal this erasure that took place? Memories of the Little Elephant was, is the story about a little girl who's simply telling her story about her family from the beginning of time. So like the first page and illustration is, in the beginning, my body was created to house my spirit. Mm. So she's starting from that place and then talks about how all her family started moving off to all these different places and took on different names. But again, with that double work of Canoon Productions of like, let's try to restitch this thing that has been erased and rearticulate it and also encompass all of humanity. You know, And I don't think that you can really encompass all of humanity without having African history intact yeah. at all. And and not just history, but what is the intellectual heritage? What's the mode of thinking? What are all these spiritual traditions and these ways that we act and be that really is knowledge-based, mm-hmm. not just foo-foo stuff? So that's that. <laughs> that's the first book. And the second one is dealing with the present and then the future. Wow. So three parts, past, present, and future. Did you know when you were doing it, it was going to be a trilogy? Yes. And do you know that what a great time during the pandemic to like finish it, right? What, it, it would be, right? maybe. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? People I've had reach out and be like, have you finished the second book yet? Have you finished the <laughs> curriculum? And it's like, wouldn't that be great? That would be awesome, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That's such a 
a difficult thing for us as artists too, right? Is because there are so many things that we're always trying to do to pay the bills, yeah. to be able to make our art. And that's, it should be reversed, you know? So like the moment that when we have time available to us and, you know, people do wonder or hope like, oh, wow, you have all this time. Maybe you're being incredibly productive. And, you know, to what we were talking about earlier, it's actually been really tough to find, I know for me, and I know you've expressed it too, motivation to finish the next book in a trilogy or whatever the project might be. It's just hard. It's hard. Yeah. Because it's like, well, for what the artist needs, it's like, okay, well, if we were, I don't know, I don't know, what what type of cubicle job is there? Name one. Whatever one of those cubicle jobs is, you know, maybe they need a desk and a laptop. Yeah. <laughs> and, and a team meeting. But it's like there is a separate list of what the artist needs to create. And a part of it is mental space, you know. And, and right yeah. now it's this strange thing of like, whoa, we got all this time with no mental space because our mental is totally bombarded right now with the fear, the worry, the how do I prepare? How do I not prepare? What's about to happen? It's like, I've never been so busy yeah. internally while my body is like, what's that word? Atrophying my muscles. They're like yeah, atrophying. Yeah, yeah. Turning to, to like noodles from so much sitting down. Yeah. Bad. So anywho... That's, uh, ask me something else, say something. <laughs> yeah, of course. You know, I, well, I, again, I think it's just like speaks to the, uh, Emma Wiseman said this, the multitudes that a lot of us have as artists, you know, and I think this particular project speaks to the multitudes of like how you express yourself as an artist, because this is, you know, one of the ways, but you also, I think, uh, approach your teaching in that way, because it seems education is a really big part of your practice too. And I wondered if maybe you could uh, talk about that as well. Mm -hmm. So I stepped into teaching when I was, well, let's just say 20 years ago. I'm one of those people now, I'm like, avoid my age. (laughs) I'm like doing it, but I'm sticking with it. 20 years ago, and I started teaching through a homeschool cooperative. And so it was a group of parents. It was in Minneapolis who decided, you know what? Black parents, we cannot keep sending our children out to a school system that does not have their best interest in mind. We have to not keep talking about it and actually do something for the well-being of our our children's mental health, sanity, and intelligence. And um, everyone decided to register as a homeschool parent, teacher, family, and then just organized, organized together to become this big co-op. And at one point, uh, I was at the University of Minnesota, one of the parents who actually had had her child in a Waldorf school for a while said the number one thing she's missing is arts there's Mm -hmm. nobody that can bring that would you be willing to come in with the children and teach art one day a week so I would come in and teach them ceramics and pottery every Friday and then the next year it turned into sure I can do more I can come in and I can teach three days a week so yeah I'll just make sure I do all of my I'll just register for Monday Wednesday classes and then I'll come in and teach Tuesday Wednesday and Friday or I think it was Monday Wednesday Friday and then I would do all my classes with them on Tuesday and Thursday and then the next year it turned into after I graduated I was just there full-time and what was beautiful about it is that I didn't approach education from within the institution of the 
Department of Education, where I'm trained as a teacher within the mode of thinking that was outside of myself. But I was trained as a teacher, so to say, through how do you nurture the spirit of the child? How do you pull out what's the true meaning of education, you know, what's innately within them? And all learning was based on project-based, projects, project-based learning, themes. And so but the child was always at the center. And if that meant that we spend an entire day on one question, so be it. Um, if that meant that, you know, we have to spend an entire week or a few weeks on one project, so be it. Because no matter what the project is we're learning, I can extract math from that. I can extract history from that. We can extract writing from that. And that's the way we learned. And um, my, the administrator at that point of the school, when I first entered, she gave me a quote. I don't know who the quote came from originally, but a person doesn't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm. You know? So that always became my foundational philosophy as a teacher, like how to nurture the spirit and express and instill care. I love that. That was my approach. And so then when I moved to New York from Minneapolis, here I am, this background now of five years with no necessarily teaching certification, but all this experience in curriculum development and nurturing the child, it was scary. I'm like, oh, I got to get a job, but no one's going to hire me. I don't even have a license. And it was absolutely the opposite. It was like what I learned to do organically within that time, I guess it, it glared. So I started working within public schools immediately, principals hiring me because I did have a different approach to relating to the children. And there it went on for the next 15 years. And it still does. Yeah. <laughs> so now I use, um, I, it has gone on to continuing to do curriculum development work. It has continued with using puppetry and visual arts to teach um, the last high school, I was at what we call the newcomer population, so newly arrived immigrant population, and also to train teachers how to do the same thing. So my teaching work is, yeah, it's a big part of my life, too. It's so holistic in the way that you are describing it, too, and I love that it is touching so many parts of the child, and that it is the, ch the child at the center of it, which, you know, makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. And yeah, yeah, it, I'm, I'm glad that that wasn't, the, the lack of so-called credentials wasn't a hindrance that people actually embraced that and were like, please come, please come. Yeah, and it just shows, you know, like how thirsty clearly we are for something that's really working instead of everybody just approaching human beings in this robotic way. Yeah. So I'm a part of a think tank committee right now for, you know, that, you know, the teaching organization Arts Connections. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. There were one here, but um, they applied for a grant and I'm grateful for it, which is through the federal government right now. But with them having to let go of all of their teaching artists, which I wasn't in residency at that point. I was like, I just want to do my own art. <laughs> so I'm burned out. But yet I'm grateful still called me in and asked me to be a part of this think tank for how do we begin to envision, you know, this uh, a potentially new pedagogy of learning with this whole, you know, computer screen thing in front of us. And my biggest, um, the biggest input I can give is that if teaching a particular thing or subject matter or skill used to be at the forefront, at this point, humanism 
and social connection, emotional connection needs to be first third or at least two thirds of the curriculum. And then let whatever little thing you want to teach be the small little nugget. But I'm, I'm, I am particularly nervous right now about humanity as a concept being ex- going extinct. Mm. Could you talk more about that? Because I think anybody that pays attention to the news, and I think that, you know, is an empath or cares in general, and not just artists, but anyone that cares about people can probably get a sense of that. But I I really like the way that you put that. And I'm just curious if you could like tease that out again a little bit more for us. Yeah. And even before this happened, I was already looking at how much time you know, my nieces and nephews and children spend interacting with the machine, you know, interacting with their phones and their screens and their tablets. And it's like, okay, we're born into these bodies. But as I know it through African philosophy, it's like, you don't become a human just because you're born. You really have to go through a becoming to be human. And children right now, if all they're interacting with is these machines, well, how do they know the difference? Mm. Like, who's teaching them the difference of what it means that one can feel and one cannot, you know, and that one has very different needs than the other? I've been afraid that we're going to lose the texture, any texture beyond screen texture, you know, like, what if it becomes the only texture is screen? So now we move into this state where, which is, I think, why my spirit has been protesting doing any of these Zoom thingies, because I I just saw on Facebook where I'm like, so many screenshots of so many people's screens. Yeah. And I'm like, but it became really normal, really fast. And I'm like, there's something not right here. And how do we prioritize remembering what the human flesh and heart and mind needs you know like i'm like oh yeah yeah my my zucchini plants under that ivy it's not getting enough sunlight it has to come out further and oh the the honeydew its leaves aren't supposed to get wet i have to water it directly into the soil where are the discussions around what does the human being need mm-hmm. and to, not just to survive but to like thrive and be optimal and healthy and yeah. abundant. I appreciated the Times recently kind of wrote a piece about how to hug in this stage of the pandemic, you know, and how to wow. do it in a socially distant way, but still have contact. And that thing that, you know, is so important, touch, human touch, texture, like you're talking about, but heart to heart, if you're doing it right, the right way, hug with somebody to like really just kind of feel grounded and, yeah. you know, uh, another person and this bigger connection to so many other things that I think a hug can often be. And even, you know, in the, the newspaper, it's like, oh, well, if you have to, here's the best way to do it. <laughs> what did they say? It was, <laughs> if you are chest to chest hugging someone, for each person to turn their head in the opposite direction. So you'd be like cheek to cheek, not to touch faces, but to make sure that you're just breathing in the opposite direction. That makes sense. And wearing masks, I think, while you're doing it. But yeah, yeah. And I I just appreciated that moment because I think it really was, you know, everybody I think is understanding how tough it is. And, you know, these wellness tips, you know, I've been seeing all the entire pandemic, but that one in the times being like a main story was like, oh yeah, we need, we need to hug again. Yeah. My, my sister is a um, nurse. She'll find out on this video, but if she ever listens to it, she probably won't. (laughs) So she had that stress of like, 
I didn't know till I got there that, or my before I went, that my niece. I was like, well, she's had like she's having a down day. I'm like, okay, well, go give your mommy lots of hugs. She's like, well, I can't. I can't hug her, you know. She told me right now I can't hug her, and no, none of us can touch because she's so nervous, you know, about having to be yeah. in the hospitals and potentially. And I'm like, just don't lick her. <laughs> just go hug her and don't lick her. But I understood it, so we just had our quiet agreement when I went down. She's like, look, I know you're not sick, and I'm not sick. I was like, that's right. We're going to hug every day. <laughs> But I'm like, oh my gosh, we're having like secret hugs in the house, and this is uh, yeah weird. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. It's because you know she's ten, and it's like how many how many years will it take to roll out the studies on what it has done for all these months of young people who need touch and adult people with young people inside of them who need touch to thrive who haven't been able to be touched for months. I don't. That's this really, really scary study when it rolls out. Yeah, yeah. It's I think. It the uncertainty of it all. Yeah, it's just it's hard. <laughs> Gosh, it's just so hard. Um yeah. Well, I, I'm curious if we could actually get you to then uh talk a little bit about food for the gods, because I think, you know, the the piece is just so incredibly beautiful and moving. And, you know, I only saw it in this very initial form when you did it back in school, in grad school, yeah, yeah. And has now uh, gone on to have this really beautiful development and production life in New York and almost <laughs> at UConn <laughs> in the fall and has been postponed. But um, for, people, um, for people that may not have seen the piece, I wonder if maybe you could talk a little bit about what it's about and some of the puppetry that you're using in the show. Uh, okay, so Food for the Gods, yeah, it's, um, how to say, um, multimedia, immersive puppetry piece written in response to the killings of black men back in 2011 mm-hmm. at that point. It was Troy Davis, and I have, a, at that point, a really strong knack for being able to protect my hypersensitive spirit from such things, and so I was working very hard to do that. Yeah. And so as everybody was saying... Uh, I am Troy Davis and all the social media, I am Troy Davis. I just kind of really kept my head in the hole as much as I possibly could because I just knew it would overwhelm me, whatever was going on with trying to stop this man from being executed. So then um, as I'm attempting to, like, a classmate offers to give me a ride home and I'm just, or a ride to the subway to get home, it's like, here it is now, march it at me down 125th Street with, like, picket signs and bullhorns and all that, like, literally, like, it's meant right for me, right in front of this car window, and I'm just trying to avoid it, but I couldn't, and the classmate's just like, oh, yeah, they're executing him now. And it was like, everything that I tried to avoid with just the casualness of looking at the watch and, oh, yeah, they're executing him now, just undid me. So then I had to go home and undo my ignorance and all the months of trying to avoid hearing whatever the tragic story was. And I don't even remember all the details of his because, you know, it just quickly, rapidly moved me into every other story from Troy Davis, Dimitil, to Amadou Diallo, to Oscar Grant, to blah, 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 and the list goes on. And so from there, I spent a night just at the point of vomiting and it really being a disgusting experience. And so that was kind of the birth of Food for the Gods. 
and my thinking was, I call it a three-part expression, and it's again back to creative anthropology and self-study being the highest form of scholarship. It's me trying to wrap my head around what is this thing, and me trying to accept, you know, we're not just one thing, of course, we're multi-dimensional and multi-feeling, so it's my indifference part of me that did what I was trying to do because what else can you do but numb yourself you know there's a point in the human system where the nervous system has to shut down and then the rage if you do choose to look at it you know I read this post by Badu recently and she was like you know to be black in America is either to live in a constant state of numbness or rage and so it's a combination of the indifference aka numbness the rage, rage slash hysteria and sanity that can come from it. And then there's the kumbayami, you know, the hippie me, this is puppy, that um, always lives under the philosophy that, hey, okay, everything that happens happens for a reason, right? Okay, Nefri. Well, if you're going to really believe that and live on this planet with that understanding, and at these times when things are so hard, you can't choose now to abandon that philosophy, right? So try to find that. Try to create a mythos for this right now that gives understanding. And so it's the, uh, the rage, the indifference in my celestial knowing. And so each, each part of this became its own act in the play. The first act just being a simple monologue. The second act being a a wonderland of having to travel through this labyrinth and deal with this mother who's coping with all these dead bodies of her sons that have been lost. And then the third act of the play being the, the myth, the celestial knowing, which is this dinner table, this gathering of all these black men who've been removed from planet Earth in a violent way. And they get to sit at this elegant, elaborate, regal dinner table. It's a ritual. It's a receiving ceremony, so each time a man is taken from the planet, the other brothers embrace him in this new space, and it's, uh, I was clear not that I didn't want to write what would be expected, which is, oh yeah, it's going to be the rah, rah, angry black play, right? Because there's nothing wrong with us, yeah. <laughs> you know, so instead it's going to be, a play that doesn't position us as victims, but simply gives me the opportunity to express our dignity and our value and our power in the midst of what's going on. So that's, uh, that's the essence. And the men, <laughs> the men ironically became puppets because I was at Sarah Lawrence. And when I decided to actually take these words and these ideas and turn it into an actual like okay let me propose this as my thesis well the one of the main things that sarah lawrence is missing is black men yeah so, oh my gosh so much so much it's like black person me and then came lamara yes yep yep <laughs> so that meant okay how do i um you know the analog creative engineering of puppetry how to do this and that's when the men became puppets um, which took on so many different meanings in itself. One side, the, the simple of it is, is that, oh, these men are puppets because it's like, yeah, that's what America does. It, it puppets these bodies, right, of black people. 
But on the other side, it gave me the opportunity to make the non-Black puppeteers who are puppeteering the mass have to stand accountable, have to breathe life back into these lifeless bodies, um, have to tell the stories of the men for them, have to stand and attend to them and be their hosts and servants in this celestial place. So things always work out, you know? <laughs> it's like what presents itself first as a problem Yeah, quickly becomes like, a, oh, it meant something, that's why. Well, I know we had talked about this earlier, kind of almost half joking about, you know, if everybody did a little bit of puppetry, maybe it would make the world a more peaceful place. And that idea is really a part of the show in, in some way, because I think you're really giving people this lived in experience of perspective taking and, and breathing life, literally breathing life into these men and, and what that feels like, that, that spiritual practice of bringing an object to life and then really trying to inhabit that as a, as a puppeteer and performer. It feels like it resonates with that idea of like, oh, puppetry could really teach us in these maybe larger ways. Yeah, I definitely think so. And um, even outside of puppetry, I was, I've been saying for the past some years, I'm like, if I was the ruler of the world... <laughs> Everybody would have to make something all the time, you know, or at least everybody would have to produce some type of art from beginning to end or some type of theater because the process you have to go through in figuring something out with another person and the process, like people think like, oh, art, it's like, oh, I just made it. It's like sometimes, or it ends up being that way, but along the way you're running into constant problems. And you're, you know, you don't get like bummed out, like, oh, this is too much of a problem, I'm done with this. Sometimes that too. <laughs> but it's just, it's, it's really the art of just figuring things out all the way until manifestation occurs. Yeah, that's a lovely analogy. Yeah, I just think it would really be helpful. Like, leaders of the world said everybody must do theater. I, I had a discussion. This is kind of not on the less positive side of it. It was a discussion that UConn did. Not, yeah, Ballard Institute of Puppetry at University of Connecticut. And we had an exhibit on black puppetry. And I was on a panel discussion at the symposium asking me to speak on cultural appropriation and puppetry. You know, like, when is it okay for non-black lives, non-black bodies to puppeteer black puppets and blah, 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 blah. And, um, I was really bucking against the conversation because I was just like, I'm really not feeling the idea he said on the panel, just kind of freestyling that the topic makes me mad because I don't like the thought of taking my mind and giving my mind the time to talk about cultural appropriation. You want me to talk about break dancing and corn rolls and hip hop dancing and different clothing as a form of cultural appropriation. And I'm supposed to be mad about that when in reality, the entire black mind and body has been appropriated. Mm -hmm. I was like, we have to start a conversation from a different place, which just made me think, you know, as I showed some of the images that get thrown all over the news and social media right now. I'm like, this is still about puppetry. Even what's happening right now with George Floyd, mm -hmm. this is still about puppetry in itself. This is about how America has turned the black body into these inanimate objects that has to just be controlled. And that was a 
like I said, a, a less positive uh, place than what we could do with puppetry. But it is another under the icky underside of the, of the same stone. Yeah, but also important to talk about, I think. Um, you know, yeah. I, I wouldn't put a, a, a judgment on it being positive or less positive. I think it just needs to be talked about. And, you know, the fact that more of these conversations are starting to happen and long overdue ones is important. And I appreciate that you've been having these conversations through your work and everything that you've been doing, you know, for a long, long time. And, you know, I... I hope that all of us can start to shoulder that burden too and, and start to do more of that same work. Yeah, it would be good. Not, and <laughs> not necessarily the same work in terms of like, oh, we all need to rally in and we all need to do something for black people work, but that we all just need to pray for and gather the courage to go inside of ourselves and be willing to study the whole mm. of ourselves, you know, and ask ourselves the hard questions of why do we do what we do both individually and collectively? How do I use what I do to be of help or of harm? Thank you for that. So, so much for that. And yeah, I, I hope that that is a self-examination that more people engage in. Um, let's take a break and we'll, Talk more with Nefremini. Thanks, Josh. This episode of The Puppet Pod is brought to you by Buttermeat Co., a company and shop started by dairy farmers who realize the importance of delicious beef that happens to be environmentally friendly. Buttermeat Co. produces local organic beef from cows who have lived their lives to the absolute fullest. Buttermeat cows produce over 80,000 pounds of milk, cheese, butter, and beef. That's a lot of dairy. And beef. That's a lot more than the mere 600 pounds of meat from a regular beef cow. And through their thoughtful and unique supply chain, Buttermeat Co. provides an elevated culinary experience. That's right. It's so elevated that you say culinary instead of culinary. And it's like nothing you've ever tasted before. Owner Jill Gould is an exceptional human being because she's looking to bring exceptional products to our exceptional community. But not just our community in Western New York. No, Jill can ship anywhere in the Northeast. And if you're not a meat eater, Jill carries lots of other products like local cheeses, eggs, coffee, amazing spices, milks, and fresh soaps and oils. She does almost everything that you could think of in your amazing kitchen that you would want. So if you want more information, please go visit buttermeatco.com or check her out on social media at buttermeatco. The Puppet Pod. We're back with Nefri Amini. And Nefri, I was curious if you could maybe tell us a little bit about how you got into the world of puppetry. Yeah. <laughs> everything's two-sided yeah right there's the conscious and then there's the unconscious okay so my conscious entry my conscious entry was moving to minneapolis lion king not yet on broadway is opening for the first time in minneapolis and one of my mom's clients she comes home and she's like oh one of my clients you know gave me tickets to the lion king you want to go see it i'm like 16 17 Say thing again. And I'm like, for what? I saw the movie. I had no interest. I wish you would have made me. So I did not take up that opportunity. And then when there was a preview of it on 
the Tonys. I was standing in her room and it, I, or I walked across her room and it came on the screen and it was like the biggest unfolding or unleashing of creativity I had ever seen in my life. I didn't even know what I was looking at, but I just remember then thinking, I want to do that, you know? And as I said it to a friend of mine, she's like, oh, you know, there's a theater here that does the exact same thing, just smaller budget, but you should check them out. And then I didn't for years. I was busy doing the teaching thing, but that was in the heart of the Beast Puppet and Mask Theater. And when I reached out to the artistic director named Sandy Spieler, I didn't know what to say because I'm like, you know, what am I asking for? I don't really know puppetry. Am I asking for a job? I don't think you're going to hire a non-puppeteer. Am I asking for you to teach? I don't know. So I just said, can we talk? <laughs> and she responded and said, sure. And then uh, she's like, I actually have some time today if you want to come by. And I did. And um, I said, I'm sure you thought my message was weird. She's like, kind of. <laughs> and um, so I said, well, do you mind if it's okay if I just splatter? And so I did, and I basically just like blah, 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 rambled out everything I just said with more rambling. And she sat there quietly, and she said, huh. she said, it's not often that a person shows up and just simply says, um, I'm here. And she said, and that's basically what you're doing, so I feel obliged to listen to you. And she pulled out like her booklet, her schedule, and proceeded in, in, in hiring me on to every paid puppetry gig that she could. And that included hiring me to be an artist on staff at the annual community parade, which is the May Day Parade. And noted, it's very interesting, she said, because most people watch the parade for years and then come in to volunteer and then come in as an intern and then do this. And she goes, and you've never even seen the parade. I'm like, I haven't. <laughs> but she totally took me under her wing and nurtured me and that is where I stepped into puppetry and I love her for life but what I didn't know you know she laughed at me a little bit because I took some of my ceramic work that I was working at the University of Minnesota and the issue I was having with my ceramic work you know it's school last minute deadlines and the kiln and trying I'm like I was always a student there with a blow dryer trying to get my clay work to hurry up and dry so that it didn't blow up in the kiln and then it was always blowing up in the kiln <laughs> and so then so that I would still try to look you know like valid I would like make up these stories with these broken pieces of sculpture and set up these installations and she's like you're trying to get things to go in a kiln that the kiln cannot support basically you know like the things I was building just did not work in the physics world of ceramics and she was just like you've been a puppeteer all these years and you didn't even know it <laughs> you know so that was my first conscious step into the world of puppetry. And then I I came to New York for a summer and worked with Alvin Ailey's summer program for children, Ailey Camp. And the director said, oh, and by the way, you know, we really would like for you, even though I'm teaching this class, it was based on personal development and using creativity to do that. That's it, I'm not a dancer. And she's like, it would be great though if you could put something on stage, stage something, no pressure, but it would be great. Well, of course I want to be great. <laughs> so, so then I'm like trying to figure out how to stage stuff with cardboard. It was 100% crappy. But <laughs> next year, they asked me to come back. Oh, Josh, you wouldn't have been impressed with me. <laughs> it was like, 
what am I doing? But the next year they asked me to come back and it was less crappy. And then the next year it was kind of good. And then after that, every I had people saying, no, I come to see these shows now just to see what you're going to come up with next. So it was like, I kept my, I moved to New York at that point, and um, I vowed that I would keep myself learning puppetry through teaching it, which is when I started calling it creative engineering, because I don't know what I'm doing either, y'all. <laughs> We're going to figure it out together. Here's my idea. Here's what I think we can do, and if you come up with something better, you tell me. And then after about eight years, I think, of doing Ailey summer programming, it hit me. I was just like, if I love this this much, if this is really my favorite part of every year, and I did some stuff with Bread and Puppet and went and spent the summer with them too, and I can't remember what else, but I was like, if I love this and this is my favorite time of every year, why don't you learn how to do it? You mm. know, why don't you learn how to actually make theater? But then I felt like the lackey. I was like, because I don't know theater. So I started looking for an interdisciplinary program, and that's a whole nother story, but blah, 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 things move quick, my life is guided, and next thing I know, I was showing up to Sarah Lawrence through, like, an email and a conversation, and here I am, and then I met Dan, and I took classes, and yeah, the rest just keeps going, subconsciously. <laughs> My absolute favorite movie when I was four years old and five years old was Dark Crystal. Yeah. Still is. And I used to watch that movie like daily. It was either Dark Crystal or Winnie the Pooh. Those were my two jams. And then I didn't know what I was watching. So when I was like around 15 or so, I'm asking my mom, I was like, you remember that movie we used to look at and it had like these things, these ears and these like long legs? And she's looking at me like, no. And I saw it one day at a video store in the mall. Remember video stores in the mall? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that's that movie. And I watched it and I was like, yo, this is deep. This is what was like encoding my subconscious mind as a child, that everything was handmade. And, and there were so many other things like that. I look back when I was little and just didn't know that I was already puppeteering and I was already sensing this life that's inside of all the quote unquote innate things. So... Ask me another question. Oh my gosh. That's yes. incredible, Nifri. Uh One final question that I, I want to ask you about is, I remember we had a conversation at some point, I don't remember when it was, but this always stuck with me because I always thought you'd be so, I mean, you wanted to do this. And I also thought, yes, this would be the perfect thing for you to do, which is you want to you want to choreograph <laughs> and like direct the opening ceremony for the Olympics. 2028. <laughs> I love it. There's a date on it already, too. Because, listen to this. I've been saying this, right? I'm like, I'm the creative director of the opening Olympic ceremonies. This is going to happen. That's me. That's my gig. That's my role. And I have no idea how to do it. I have no idea how the Olympic Committee goes about selecting anybody for that. But do you know, like, the Olympics has not been in the United States since Atlanta in... Oh, 96. Yeah. That was it. And then all of a sudden, boom, you keep manifesting and speaking something. And then I got word that the U.S. put in this bid for the Olympics for the first time. And I think that bid was put in like five years ago since the 96. I'm like, this is happening. And then they didn't get it. And then they did this thing for the first time where they split it up front. They selected it. So it's like Japan this year, I think, that's postponed. Yeah. I think it's Tokyo. Yep. Yeah. Then Paris. And then Los Angeles. 
when you look at that Los Angeles logo, 2028, you're going to see Nefri all over it. Okay. <laughs> so I don't know. Was that your question? <laughs> what was the question? Perfect. Ask the question. <laughs> With the perfect response. Oh, my God. Do I still want to do it? I'm glad you remember. Yes. <laughs> Olympic Committee, you listening? Talk to me. I have lots to bring to the table. Um, I, the IOC are big <laughs> listeners of the Puppet Bond, so this message will get right to them. Of course they are. Call me. Let's have lunch, <laughs> have wine, and just figure it out. And Nefri will splatter at you, and you'll take it all in, and then you'll start putting yeah, her yeah, down yeah. in the date book, and it'll be perfect. I've been putting the team together for years in my head, <laughs> and even in a file. Oh, my gosh. I want... Ready. I want that more than anything. I want that more than anything. I do too, Josh. I'll get you. You'll be there. Ticket. Amazing. Instantly. Amazing. <laughs> um, well, this has been incredible. Incredible, Nefri. Thank you so much for your time. Before we wrap up, um, we've been doing this thing where we ask our artists just some very quick rapid fire questions and then just kind of whatever is top of mind. We call it the puppet hot pot. Um, so like we it. have a list of, of questions for you uh, whenever you're ready. <laughs> Yeah, are you ready? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, getting our ready juice. Ready juice. <laughs> All right. So first one. Um, what form of puppetry are you most interested in right now? The only reason I'm hesitating like this is because I have my own Nefri way of saying it, and I know I always say it wrong, and I'm trying not to embarrass myself, but I don't care because I know it's... Bunraku? Yeah, Bunraku style. Yeah, you know that. But you hear the way I said it. <laughs> I didn't say it like you did. <laughs> well, you, I like that you also were like whisper saying it. I was like, let me just mumble it because, yeah. <laughs> That's mine. <laughs> Amazing. I'm like, how are you going to be a puppeteer and don't know your fa how to say your favorite word? It's like cinnamon. It took me years to say it right. <laughs> well, you could you could also just say like three person style or something. I don't know. Whatever is whatever. Yeah. Japanese style of puppetry. Yeah. Perfect. Amazing. Um, <laughs> what, is a, cool. what is a hobby that you've developed in this quarantine time? Planting watermelon seeds. Mm-hmm. Love it. Um, what is your favorite place in the world that your work has taken you? Amsterdam. We were there together. Yeah, it really, I had no idea that I was going to love Amsterdam that much. Yeah, same. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. Okay, and Haiti. I yeah. would have said Haiti, but I, I kind of went there on my own, and then my work got picked up while there. But Haiti and Amsterdam. Uh, and I... I feel bad that I never even got to asking you about this. It was on my list of things. Um, you were also invited to Cape Town for the Women's International Playwrights Conference as a, as a delegate for Food for the Gods, right? That was cool, yeah. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> um, Just want to shout that out to the Olympic Committee when they're listening that, like, you got cred. You got a lot of cred. There's so much more Olympic Committee. <laughs> Let's talk and if you're considering somebody else bring us all to the room so we can talk and that's right. it's a group job interview i like that concept yeah 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 um okay ask me more i like this okay are there any rituals that you have right now that you would care to share with us i shut off my cell phone at 10 o'clock a.m I light a candle and I light an incense. I get out of bed and I clean my puppy's litter. Cat, 
puppy the cat. I cleaned the cat's litter and I feed him. And what other ritual is there? I've really been on a dumpling kick. Ooh. Over this quarantine, dumplings were not a part of my life. I'm like making up stories and songs about how one day she turned into a little dumpling. <laughs> but I like fried dumplings and steamed dumplings. And why make them for just when you're going to eat them when you can just make a bowl and have them on the table like grapes <laughs> and just snack all day? So I have a dumpling ritual too. Love that. I need to start a dumpling ritual. B I B I G O, that brand. B I B I B B G O, yeah. <laughs> They're the best. Amazing. I need that. I got to check that Advertising. out. Um, okay. More puppet hop up. <laughs> Is there anything about puppetry that you would like to change? I would like to change more black people being involved. Hell yes. Yeah. It's, it's already hippie enough of a field by itself yeah. where it's like puppeteer, huh? that's cute but then you know on top of that it's like oh yeah you're really down for the cause aren't you puppeteer yeah. <laughs> who only goes out and mingles with people that don't look like you while you're puppeteering so that would be good even in casting or working with other puppeteers I am no longer interested in just bringing on people who are puppeteers. I've always just been interested in bringing on people who have a sensuous nature Mm. because I feel like that's all it takes. If you have a a sensuality to your spirit and a sensitivity, then you can transfer life into an object. And so I'm like, I don't care. I can train a puppeteer. Thanks to Dan Harlan and Sandy Spieler. Oh my God. (laughs) Poetry snaps for all of that. I love, 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 love that. And yes, we puppetry be so white we have to fix that we gotta fix that yeah and i met a whole bunch of other black puppeteers last year at the conference at ballard so i'm like oh we exist and there was like five other black women <laughs> like five <laughs> maybe six of us amazing ready for another yes any new recipes that you've been experimenting with during this time dumplings doesn't count right <laughs> um not if they're pre-made they are. <laughs> um, I wish. It sounds like such a nice thing to say. Yeah. I got this great recipe. Mm-mm. I've been on taco salad and dumplings. Like so that. I like that. Keep, just keep the ground turkey in the refrigerator. And I have moved from working with those little packs of taco seasoning to just buying the big one. Yes. <laughs> so that I make sure I don't run out. Take that. You know what you need. You know what you need. I love that. Um, and then finally, in your visioning of what the opening ceremony might look like, could you share any visuals with us about some of the things that you see in your your version of the Los Angeles 2028 games? Children. There will be lots of children. Hell yes. <laughs> Hell yes. Uh, Nefri, you are... An incredible human being in the... Like, right back at you, Jay Rice. <laughs> Thanks. That's, that's, that's very nice coming from you, especially. So thank you so much for the time. And my gosh, like the best part of this really has been getting to talk to people in a deeper way. And especially people that I have not talked to as often uh, as I would like. So I, I appreciate your time for this. I appreciate yours and y'all too. So... <laughs> so- um, and is there... Is there any place that um, we could guide people to check out more of your work? Sure. 
nefriamini.com H before the P R I I N E H P R I I. But it's gonna be on a button. You're gonna have a clicky thing. Yeah, people will be able to read this. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. I don't even know if it's updated right now. I should be using this quarantine time to update my website. <laughs> oh, the shoulds. Judge the shoulds me not. Judge me not. <laughs> I got dumplings to eat. <laughs> Nefri, you're amazing. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. <laughs> Enjoy the day. The Puppet Pod, hosted by Josh Rice and me, Sarah Stabley. Produced and engineered by also me, Sarah Stabley. Theme song and incidental music by Seth Fargolzia and additional music by Hazar and Scott Holmes. Executive produced by Dixon Place and the New York State Puppet Festival, a program of Shake on the Lake and Josh Rice Projects. Support is provided by Dixon Place, the Jim Henson Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Arts Council for Wyoming County Community Arts Grant, a regrant program of the New York State Council on the Arts. To make donations, please visit shakeonthelake.org or dixonplace.org. For more information about the artists featured on our podcast, please visit www.thepuppetpod.com. Oh, <laughs> oh,